Well, we have been inching our way towards Daniel, and with uh, Harry Walls' introduction or his comment today, reference to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I think this is just a perfect segue for us to go into the book of Daniel. So I invite you to turn to Daniel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 1, and we'll start by looking at the life of Daniel, the man who wrote this book, and the life that he lived, and the events that he experienced in his life, and the character that he had. That's what I'd like for us to do, look at the prophet Daniel to see who he was. And so we'll do a little bit of flipping uh, today through Daniel and to other books, so you can be prepared for that. But as we look at the life of Daniel, we see that he lived an uncompromising life, a life that was fully devoted to God from his youth all the way until his death. A biography of an uncompromising life. That's the life of Daniel. And as a man who lived an uncompromising life, Daniel stands as a tower of an example for us of how we too must live our lives in this world. Because just like Daniel, we face pressure to compromise in this world all the time. And this is one of Satan's tactics, right? He says to us, you can believe in God, just don't believe everything the Bible says. A little bit of compromise. He says, you can be a Christian, just be accepting of the LGBTQ also. A little bit of compromise. And Satan has done this from the very beginning, from the beginning of the history of humanity. You can think about Adam. He compromised his obedience to God, and here we are experiencing the fall. Abraham compromised the truth, lied about Sarah, and almost lost his wife. Sarah compromised her trust in God, gave Abraham to Hagar. They had Ishmael, and now there's no peace in the Middle East ever since then. Aaron compromised faithfulness to God in the wilderness, compromised his commitment to God, committed idolatry, led the people through idolatry, and so they all died in the wilderness. David compromised his purity, committed adultery with Bathsheba, lost the son, his son, and lost peace within his family. Solomon compromised his exclusive commitment to God, married many, many women, and lost the kingdom. Israel, after they entered the land, compromised their commitment to God, their obedience to the law of God, and they were sent into exile. In the New Testament, you can think about Peter. He compromised his convictions about Christ, his commitment to Christ, denied him, and he lost his joy. Judas compromised his opportunity to follow and to love Christ, and he forfeited his soul. All of these lives stand as examples and as warnings to us, exhorting us to live lives that are uncompromising, lives that are committed to Christ. And the New Testament says that we're to learn from them. And as a result, we're supposed to pursue Christ faithfully and fervently. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul describes the generation that lived in the wilderness, describes how they were disobedient, how they were rebellious, how they were idolatrous. And he says that you look at them and they are supposed to serve as examples to us. And in verse 6, he says, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil as they also craved evil. And then as Paul continues to go through chapter 10 and then into chapter 11, he gives us the flip side of this. He begins to describe his life, and he says, 
in uh, chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. So we can ask the question, are we imitating Paul and other giants of faith and living Christ, living for Christ, pursuing Christ in a faithful way? We can also ask the question, can we say about our lives, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ? I know it's frightening to say those words, but are we pursuing to live lives like that. So we study godly men and women in modern history, in church history, in the Bible, so that we see what it means to live a godly life and we want to imitate those lives and live godly lives. And when we look at the life of Daniel, we see an uncompromising life. He was fully devoted to God. He was uncompromising in his obedience to God, he was uncompromising in his study of the Word of God, and he was uncompromising in his prayer to God. And because of his uncompromising life, God used Daniel in powerful ways, in his own time in the pagan society, but also through the generations and all the way up to our time, serving as an example for us of what it means to live a life for God. The first major characteristics we see, characteristic we see about Daniel is that he lived a life of uncompromising obedience to God. Now, you might think that, of course, he was obedient to God. He had a hard life. He lived through a lot in Babylon. He was taken to exile, so he matured in his faith, and he submitted himself to God because of his difficult life. And so as an older man, of course, he was faithful to God. But the truth is, he was resolved to obey God even from his youth, even as a young man. Daniel chapter 1 begins by describing how Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, came to Israel, conquered that land, and he exiled thousands of Israelites, thousands of Jews to Babylon. And one of these Israelites was young Daniel. So look at Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, this is in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of Judah. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, which is Babylon, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God, his pagan God. Because the Israelites were disobedient in the land, because they rebelled against God, God sent Gentile nations, enemy nations, to punish them and to exile them. So in 722, the Assyrians came and they took over the northern kingdom of Israel and they exiled thousands of Israelites from northern Israel. Then about a hundred, a little bit more than a hundred years later, Babylon came and they conquered Jerusalem. In three attacks or three campaigns against Jerusalem, they conquered Jerusalem, they destroyed the city, they burned down the temple, and they exiled thousands of Jews from Jerusalem into various lands of Babylon or the territory of Babylon. And you can see here, this is where Jerusalem is, and this is where Babylon is. So they were taken from this land, carried all the way across, up and then south, towards Babylon, about 900 miles. 
Ezra 7 says that it, this would have taken about four months or so to travel to, that, to the land of Babylon. And when the Israelites were taken, when Babylon conquered them, Daniel was one of the Israelites taken captive and removed from Jerusalem to Babylon. And you know how old he was at that time? Fifteen. Thank you. Who said that? Raise your hand. Thank you. Yep. Fifteen years old. Fifteen years old. Just a few weeks ago, we uh, sang happy birthday to Nehemiah. Chow, right? Abner's son. He's 15 years old. That's just a reference point for how young he was. And when the Israelites, when Daniel and the Israelites were taken to Babylon at 15 years old, many other young men and women, they were immediately pressured to give up their, uh, their culture, to give up their worship of God, and to submit to the culture of Babylon, to submit to various kinds of Babylonian principles, rules, cultures, and lifestyle. And it would have been easy for them to compromise. Daniel, if we think about Daniel, he was young. He was ripped out of his context, out of his city. His parents are nowhere mentioned in the book of Daniel, so they probably weren't there. So it was just him and the other Israelites around him. And so they were, they were pressured by the Babylonians to compromise and to give up the lifestyle that they were raised in. The first thing that the Babylonians did to them was change their names from Israelite names, which were associated with God, to Babylonian names, which were associated with Babylonian names or Babylonian gods. Daniel, his name was changed to Belteshazzar. Daniel, which means God is my judge, changed to Belteshazzar, which means Bel to keep the king, or may Bel to uh, keep the king, or may Baal keep the king, protect the king. Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that Harry mentioned this morning, their Jewish names were Hananiah, which is God is gracious, or Yahweh is gracious, was changed to Shadrach, which means Aku is in charge. Aku, a Babylonian god. Mishael, which means who is like God, was changed to Meshach, which means who is like Aku. And Azariah, which means Yahweh is help, was changed to Abednego, which is slave of Nego, or slave of Nebo, another name for the same god. And they changed their names in order to erase their Jewish identity, their Jewish heritage so that they would assimilate to the Babylonian culture. They also, secondly, they, they uh, forced the Israelites to go to Babylonian schools and to learn Babylonian theology, Babylonian literature, all kinds of Babylonian materials so that they would become Babylonians. And this was a way for the, for the Babylonians to brainwash them. And thirdly, the Babylonians tried to force the Israelites to break God's law and to submit to Babylonian law. And the way that they did this, which we see in Daniel chapter 1, is by changing their food diet. By changing their food diet. So look at Daniel chapter 1, verse 5. It says here that the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank. Now we can ask, well, what's the big deal about eating a different kind of food? Why be stubborn and persnickety about eating a different kind of food? 
Israelite food, Jewish food versus Iraqi food in, Babylon, in Babylonia, right? It's both are good food. You're in exile, you're in prison, so be thankful that you even have food. It's not like they're forcing you to give up believing in God. It's not like they're forcing you to believe in some kind of an idol, right? They're giving you the best of the best, the king's food. So why make a big fuss about that? But Daniel knew that God had commanded the Israelites not to eat food that was not kosher. So you weren't allowed to eat pork. You weren't allowed to eat shrimp. You weren't allowed to eat food that had blood with it. God prohibited that kind of food to be consumed by the Jews, by the Israelites. The book of Leviticus describes all of that in detail. And the reason God did this was so that the Israelites would be kept separate from the rest of the pagan nations. That was, that was God's way of distinguishing them so that they would be an example to them. Well, when Daniel was told that you have to eat this Babylonian food, Daniel said, I can't. I can't break God's law. If I eat the food that the Babylonians are giving me, I'll be submitting to the law of the Babylonians, not to the law of God. If I eat the food that they're giving me, I will be intermingling with the Babylonians instead of being separate from them as God had commanded us. And so in thinking through this, here is Daniel's response in verse 8. Daniel 1.8. But Daniel set in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. Daniel could handle a changed name because he knew who he was. He could handle going to Babylonian school because he knew what he believed. But disobeying the law of God, that was just too much for him. That was the line. He was uncompromising in his obedience to God. And so the question is, why was he so uncompromising? Because he loved God. He wanted to keep God's commandments because he loved God. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus was saying the very same thing that Daniel had learned in his youth from his parents, from the scriptures. In Deuteronomy 6, that famous Shema passage, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. In that passage, Moses continues to describe what, that mean, what it means to worship Yahweh. And he says, You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Daniel knew this, and this is what was on Daniel's mind all the time that he was in Babylon. In that same passage in verse 6, Deuteronomy 6.6, 6, Moses continues to say that these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And that's exactly what we see Daniel doing here in verse 8. It says, Daniel set in his heart what he would, that he would not defile himself with the king's food. The word of God was on Daniel's heart just as Deuteronomy 6 commands. And even today, even though Israel rejects God as a nation, they still recognize the importance of this passage. And if you were to, when I was in Israel, studying in Israel, uh, you would wake up in the morning and you would hear the radio announcement, the news go on, and the first thing that they would say at sunrise is Deuteronomy 6.4. They would recite the words. 
Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. So they recognize the importance of this verse for the Israelites that God gave to the Israelites. And this was the one thing that Daniel had on his mind all the time that he was in Babylon, to fear God. And in that passage in Deuteronomy, Moses adds in verse 13, Yahweh your God you shall fear, and him you shall serve. So Daniel was not concerned with what the Babylonians would say about him. Daniel was concerned with what God would say. God was Daniel's judge. And in this way, Daniel was living up to the meaning of his name. God is my judge. But the meaning, God is my judge, is not, does not have a negative connotation. It has a positive connotation. Uh, the, f- the first time that we encounter this name in the Bible is when David actually names one of his sons Daniel. When David was fleeing from Saul, uh, there was a time when Dan- David requested, sent his soldiers or sent his men to Nabal and requested for some food from Nabal. Well, Nabal refused And so Daniel's response was, I'm going to go kill that entire family. That was David's response. However, Abigail, Nabal's wife, came out and she she pleaded with David and she said to him, don't kill Nabal, don't kill the family. Instead, let God be the judge. And David did let God be the judge and God judged Nabal. Ten days later, Nabal died So God judged David, but God judged on behalf of David also. And so then when David took Abigail to be his wife afterwards, 1 Chronicles 3.1 says that they had a son, and David named that son Daniel to honor the fact that God was judging on behalf of David. God was David's judge, and God judged on David's behalf. And so Daniel, the only thing Daniel was concerned about was the fact that God was his judge. This was Daniel at age 15. But this uncompromising commitment to obedience stayed with Daniel all throughout his life, and he gained the reputation of being a righteous man. And he had this reputation not only in his palace, not only in the vicinity of the exiles around him, but all throughout the ancient Near East. Ezekiel, who was another prophet from another region in exile, just about 100 miles away or so, you can see on the map here, uh, Daniel would have been in this region, and Ezekiel would have been in this region, which is about 100 miles away or so. And so when uh, Ezekiel wrote his prophecy from God, Ezekiel included Daniel in a list of righteous men. And so uh, in Ezekiel 14, 14, God is speaking to Ezekiel and he's explaining that because the sins of Jerusalem were so, so vile, that the, the punishment, the judgment of Jerusalem was unavoidable. And then God says, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst by their own righteousness, they could deliver only themselves. So God recognizes that Daniel was a righteous man, that he was obedient. He was recognized to be righteous in his own vicinity, recognized outside of his vicinity in the greater uh, exilic uh, proximity, but also 
by God himself. And Daniel was not in a situation where it was easy to submit to God or to obey God. You know, he was away from his family. He was away from his people. He was away from Jerusalem, from the temple of God. So he could have easily said desperate times, call for desperate measures. And then he could have compromised. But for Daniel, the principle was not desperate times, call for desperate measures. The principle for Daniel was, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And that's what drove Daniel's decisions. That's what drove Daniel's commitment to God. That's what drove Daniel to his uncompromising obedience to God. Now, in addition to uncompromising obedience to God, Daniel was also uncompromising in his study of the Word of God. In the worst of circumstances, in a pagan society, in the busyness of life, in the government where he was serving, Daniel was committed to studying the Word of God. For this, go with me to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Many years pass after Daniel is brought to exile from Jerusalem. Daniel was 15 when he was brought, and now Daniel is in his 80s in Daniel chapter 9. He's in his 80s. He's been promoted to various high positions throughout the government because of his integrity, because of his wisdom. And as he's serving in this government, pagan government, one of the things that he does throughout his entire life is study Scripture. And one of the biblical texts he studied, which he knew well, which he even incorporated into his prayer, which means that he knew it well, is the Torah, the five books of Moses. And look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 13. This is when Daniel is praying and he's confessing his sins. And this is what he says. He says, As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Daniel is thinking, why are we in exile? Why are we in exile? And to answer that question, he is going to the scriptures to see what did God say to the Israelites. And so he studies the Torah, the five books of Moses, He goes to Leviticus chapter 26, which describes that if Israel obeys God, God will bless them. And if Israel disobeys God, God will curse them. He looks at Deuteronomy chapter 28, which describes the same thing. If Israel obeys, God will bless. If Israel disobeys, God will curse. And so all these years, Daniel is studying and looking at his life, the things that he's experiencing, and he's looking for answers to the questions about his life in the scriptures. And his study of the Torah, his study of the Word of God is not just intellectual exercise, right? It brings him to his knees. It affects his practical life. Go down to verse 19. After Daniel is studying the Scripture, this is his response. He says, O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. His study of God's Word moved Daniel to plead with God for repentance, for forgiveness. But in addition to studying the Torah, Daniel also studied the prophets. He wanted to understand what is God's plan for Israel in light of everything that is happening. And so he turned to the prophets, and we see in Daniel that he even had some copies of the manuscripts that the prophets wrote. Look, go to the beginning of chapter 9, and look at chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It says in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, 
from the seed of the Medes, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. This is when Medo-Persia conquered Babylon, and now Persia is in charge. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, discerned in the books the number of the years concerning which the words of Yahweh came to Jeremiah, the prophet, for the fulfillment of the laying waste of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Daniel is studying the book of Jeremiah. And as he's studying this scroll, Daniel says that Jeremiah wrote that Israel is supposed to be in exile for 70 years. Where does Jeremiah say this? Well, turn back with me to Jeremiah chapter 25. This is just a few books back. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11. Daniel is going through the scroll of Jeremiah, and he comes to Jeremiah 25, 11, and he reads this. Jeremiah 25, 11, it says, This whole land, or Israel, this whole land will be a waste place and an object of horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Daniel reads this, and he says, well, wait a minute. We're at the 70-year period right now. Exile is supposed to end. That's what Jeremiah says. That's what Daniel reads. He applies that to his context, and he's saying, this should be happening right now. Well, what happens then? Go to Jeremiah chapter 29. Daniel continues to read Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. And as Daniel is reading, this is what he sees. For thus says Yahweh, when 70 years have been fulfilled for Babylon, I will visit you and establish my good word to you to return you to this place, to Judah. And so Daniel reads that after 70 years, Israel is supposed to return from exile and go back to Judah. And Daniel responds to this by praying and by pleading with God, may this take place. May this be fulfilled. Look at verse 9. Go back to Daniel 9 and look at verse 19 in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel 9, 19. Daniel says this. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, give heed and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. Looking at this, we see that even though Daniel was in exile... He was studying the Word of God. Now, if I want to get a Bible right now, I can go to the bookstore. I can buy a Bible. I can go to Amazon. I can order it, and Jeff Bezos will deliver it to me in two days. (laughs) I have those options. But how did Daniel get the scrolls of Jeremiah? Daniel's right here in Babylon. Jeremiah is right here in Judah. Jeremiah is writing this while Daniel is in exile. How is Daniel getting the scrolls from Jeremiah? 900 miles away, four months travel. Go to Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1, and it answers this question for us. Jeremiah 29, verse 1 says, now, let's see, there it is. Now, these are the words 
of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken away into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Jeremiah wrote the prophecies in Judah that God was revealing to him, and then he sent those prophecies to exile, to all of the believers who were in exile in Babylon. The question is, why did Jeremiah do this? Because he knew that there were people of God in exile who wanted to know what God was saying. So Jeremiah knew that not only were people like Daniel consumed by the word of God and studied it regularly, he, they knew that they were so consumed by it that they wanted to receive revelation from Judah to exile. Daniel and other men of God, people of God, had a reputation throughout the ancient Near East that they were people of the Word of God. They loved the Word of God. They were committed to it. And Daniel was prioritizing the Word of God. The reputation was not only local, but it was global. He wanted the messengers who traveled between Babylon and Judah, he wanted them to bring the scriptures from Judah to Babylon so that he could read them. This is just like Paul. When he was in prison in 2 Timothy 4.13, we see that Paul writes to Timothy from prison, and he says to Timothy, when you come to me, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus, because he was cold. And the scrolls, and these are the Old Testament scriptures. Paul is in prison, and he's saying, bring me the scriptures. And then he says, and especially the parchments, and this would be paper to write letters to the churches. While sitting in prison, Paul is asking for someone to bring the scriptures to him. True men and women of God love the word of God. They are consumed by the word of God. And this should convict all of us. We have the same amount of time per day, the same amount of time per week. We have 168 hours per week. If we sleep eight hours per night, that's 58, 50, help me, 56 hours, <laughs> right, per week, okay, 168, 56 hours. If we sleep those 56 hours, we're left with 112 hours. If we work a 60-hour week, which is more than usual, then we're left with 52 hours. If we take 45 hours and we do whatever we want, you can sleep more, you can read more, you can spend time with family, you can go to the beach, you can watch Fox News. I hope nobody watches Fox News for 45 hours <laughs> per week. But you can do whatever you want for those 45 hours and we still have seven hours left. That's one hour every day for the week to read the scriptures. Why is it so hard for us to read one hour per day? Charles Feinberg, a familiar name to all of us, he was John MacArthur's professor. He was uh, John MacArthur's mentor at Talbot Seminary. He read through the Bible four times per year. And the way that he did this was every afternoon he would set aside one hour. And by setting aside that one hour every single day, he read through the scriptures four times per year. Now, he did that in Hebrew and Greek, so we should be able to do that in English. 
But this is just a reminder to us that men and women of God are committed to the Word of God. And for Daniel, God's Word was his priority. Well, Daniel wasn't compromising in his obedience to God. He was uncompromising in his study of the Word of God, and he was uncompromising in his prayer to God. All throughout his time in exile, Daniel shows that he is committed to prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing, and that's exactly what we see Daniel doing. Pastor John said that Jesus gave us instructions how to pray. When we look at the life of Daniel, we see Daniel doing this very thing that Jesus said. Daniel was an example of someone who prayed all the time in the way that Jesus described. He prayed according to the word of God. He prayed according to the will of God. He prayed for the glory of God. He prayed for wisdom, for understanding, for protection, for the forgiveness of sin. He prayed when he was facing life and death crises. He prayed when he was commanded not to pray. He always prayed. He was defined by this quality all throughout his life. And we see Daniel praying when he was just taken into exile 15, 16, 17 years old as a teenager. In Daniel chapter 2, which you can turn to, Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he can't interpret or understand the dream. So he calls all of the wise men and all of the magicians. And he says to them, tell me the dream and interpret it for me. They can't. So his response is, kill them all. And when this word gets to Daniel, Daniel says, don't kill anyone. I will interpret the dream. Okay, and so then he goes back to his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in in Daniel chapter 2, verse 17. And he doesn't say to them, brothers, we have to figure out the meaning of this dream, otherwise we're going to be killed. That's not what he says. Look at verse 17, Daniel 2, 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to his friends, to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so that they might seek compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. Daniel has a difficulty, has a challenge, and so he turns to God to ask God to give him him clarity, to give him the meaning of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And when God reveals the interpretation of the dream, this is what Daniel's response is in verse 23. Daniel says, To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might. Even now you have made known to me what we sought from you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Daniel understood that he received the meaning of Nebuchadnezzar's dream from God through prayer, and he calls that wisdom. Without prayer, Daniel knew that he had nothing. Through prayer, God gave him wisdom. In James 1.5, it's a familiar passage to us, says, If you lack wisdom... Ask God, and he will give you wisdom generously, without reproach. Daniel understood this very principle, which James penned much later, way before. And he responded to it accordingly. That's exactly what Solomon did also. When Solomon became king, God appeared to him in a dream, and God said to him, Ask of me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And Solomon says to him, Give me a listening heart. Give me a heart of wisdom. And then in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 12, it says that God gave Solomon a wise and discerning heart. That's what Daniel did. He was a man of prayer, 
and because he prayed to God, God gave him wisdom. Daniel prayed to God when he was young. Daniel prayed to God when he was older. Go back to Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel 9, when Daniel is again in his 80s and he's studying the book of Jeremiah, he sees that the exile is supposed to end after 70 years. And he's at this 70-year point. And look at Daniel's response, which I already mentioned earlier. Daniel chapter 9, verse 3. Daniel responds to the prophecies in this way. He says, I gave my face to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. His response to the prophecies that exile will end is to pray to God and to plead with God that he would make this come to fulfillment, that exile would end. And as I said earlier, Daniel's prayer stemmed from the word of God. It was according to the will of God. In it, he confessed the sin of Israel. He expressed his full dependence on the grace of God. And ultimately, he was praying for the glory of God. He wanted God's name to be glorified. Look at, look at the confession of Daniel's, Daniel and Israel's sin in verses 4 and 5. He says, I prayed to Yahweh my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, we have sinned and committed iniquity and acted wickedly and rebelled. And as he's confessing this sin, Daniel declares that only God can forgive sin. He says in verse 9, To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him. This is just like David in Psalm 51. Against you, you only have I sinned. Now, at the end of Daniel chapter 9, God reveals to Daniel that forgiveness of sin is achieved only through the death of the Messiah. In verses 24 through 27, uh, the angel Gabriel appears to Daniel and he explains to him that God will remove transgression. God will bring an end to all of sin. But this will take place through a central event in human history. And that central event will be the death of the Messiah. The Messiah will be cut off. Only through the death of the Messiah can sin be forgiven. That's why Peter says in Acts 4.12 that there is salvation in no one else but in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Forgiveness of sin is given only through the death and resurrection of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Daniel acknowledges that there is nothing we can do to obtain forgiveness through our efforts. It's all done only by the grace of God. In Daniel 9.18, you can see Daniel says here, We are not presenting our supplication before you on account of any righteousness of our own, but on account of your abundant compassion. This is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace through faith. It's all because of God's grace. And then when we look at the rest of the prayer, we see that Daniel's prayer is driven entirely by the glory for God's name. In verse uh, verse 19, he says, O Lord, listen, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, give heed and take action for your own sake. Do this for your sake, Lord, for your name. Ultimately, we pray because we want God to be glorified through our lives. 
Prayer is not some kind of a tactic for us to get what we want. Prayer is an opportunity for us to declare our dependence on God, to align our wills with God's will, and to seek God's glory through our lives. This is the heart of Daniel's prayer. Now, in addition to these two examples of Daniel's prayer, Daniel shows that he was so committed to prayer that he prayed even when he was told not to pray. And so turn with me to Daniel chapter 6 for this. In Daniel 6, we read about that familiar account of Daniel in the lion's den. And we see that the entire episode takes place because Daniel refused to stop praying. That was the problem. The government officials who hated Daniel, they conspired to get him killed. And the way that they did this was by going after his prayer life. They knew that he was a man of prayer. They knew that he was committed to prayer. They knew that he would not give up prayer. And so they outlawed prayer. And so in verse 7, Daniel 6, 7, the enemies of Daniel come to King Darius, and this is what they say. They say, all the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have counseled together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who seeks to make a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. So anyone who prays to the true god, death penalty. They're put to death. Now, look at Daniel's response to this when he sees that this law goes into effect. This is in verse 10. Daniel 6.10 says, Now, when Daniel knew that the written document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. So he entered his house, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Daniel had been a man of prayer, and he continued to be a man of prayer, even if it was illegal, even if it was at the expense or at the risk of losing his life. Now, what's fascinating here is that not only did he stay committed to prayer, his enemies knew that he would stay committed to prayer. They would have been surprised if he had stopped praying. That's how much of a man of prayer he was. Look at verse 11. As soon as the law goes into effect, these men came by agreement. So they had a plan. They came by agreement and they found Daniel seeking to make a petition and making supplication before his God. Again, Daniel's enemies knew that if praying was illegal, Daniel would be praying. He had a reputation of being a man of prayer. And so because he was not willing to stop praying, because he was not willing to interrupt this relationship with God, he was thrown into the den of lions. Daniel was willing to die for the sake of his prayer life with God. He was uncompromising in his prayer to God, and people around him knew this. Because Daniel was a man of prayer, God blessed him, and God gave him exceptional wisdom. And Daniel became a man who was recognized to be the wisest man in the ancient Near East. If you go to, well, you can just listen to this one. In, in, uh, in Daniel chapter 5, 
King Belshazzar, the successor after Nebuchadnezzar, he sees the handwriting on the wall and he can't understand it and nobody can explain to him what's going on. And so he panics and then the queen mother comes out and she says to him, don't panic, there is a Daniel in this kingdom and he has illumination, insight, wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods. And she says like the wisdom of the gods because this is a pagan society. But this wisdom was coming directly from the true God. Because Daniel prayed, God gave him this wisdom and people knew that he was a man of prayer. People knew that he had this wisdom. But he was known, he had this reputation not only in his immediate context, but again, in the broader context of the ancient Near East. I've already mentioned that Ezekiel recognized Daniel for being a righteous man. Well, Ezekiel also recognizes Daniel for being the wisest man in his time. In uh, Ezekiel chapter 28, God is uh, condemning the king of Tyre. He's condemning him for his pride. And he says to the king of Tyre, you think you're so wise because you have accumulated all of this wealth. You think you're so wise because you have accumulated all of this power. And then he says in 28.3, he says, you think you're so wise, you think you're wiser than Daniel. So God uses Daniel as the superlative of wisdom. In other words, you think you're wiser than the wisest man who is alive right now. Of course, God could have used Solomon, but God wanted to use somebody who was alive at that time. And to do this, he mentioned Daniel. Daniel's life of wisdom was known and it was tightly linked to his prayer life. Because he prayed, he was wise. And this prayer life is one of the distinctive qualities of Daniel. He was a man of prayer and everybody knew that he was a man of prayer. So this is the Daniel who wrote the book that we are beginning to study. He was uncompromising in his obedience to God. He studied, he was uncompromising in his study of the word of God, and he was uncompromising in his prayer to God. Now, the last major event that Daniel saw and likely participated in arranging was the return of the exiles back to Judah, from exile to Judah. In Daniel chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 11, we see that Daniel lived until the first few years of King Cyrus, who conquered Babylon and who took over the ancient Near East. And one of the first decrees that King Cyrus issued was, he said, if any of the Israelites want to go back to Judah, gather up and you can go back to Judah and you can rebuild the city and you can rebuild the temple. This is exactly what Daniel was thinking about throughout his time in, the, in the Babylon. This is exactly what Daniel was studying scriptures about. This is what Daniel was praying about, and now he was seeing it happen with his own eyes. So in God's grace, Daniel lived long enough to see Cyrus conquer Babylon. This is the Babylon that destroyed Jerusalem, that burned down the temple, that exiled Daniel and other Israelites to Babylon. And Daniel lived long enough to see Cyrus give this edict for the Jews to return back to Judah. This was God's grace toward the man who distinguished himself as a man of God in this world. But not 
only did this world know the godly character of Daniel. Heaven itself and God himself declared this about Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 23, Daniel is praying to God. He's confessing his sin, Israel's sin. And as he's praying, the angel Gabriel appears to him. And this is the first thing that the angel Gabriel says to him. He says, at the beginning of your supplications, the word was issued. So I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. The angel was sent to Daniel because Daniel was highly esteemed in heaven. In his immediate context, in the greater context, in heaven, by God himself. This is the man Daniel whose book and whose prophecies we are studying. And this is why Paul says emulate and imitate giants of faith as we are looking at in the life of Daniel. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have left your scriptures for us, that you have left examples for us to imitate so that we would know how to live for your glory, how to live pure lives, how to live in ways, Lord, that we would be esteemed in your eyes. Lord, that's what we aspire. That's what we desire to do. Lord God, we thank you for Daniel. We thank you for his life, for the way that you sustained him. Lord, I pray that as we embark on this journey for the next few months of studying the book of Daniel, of studying the character of Daniel, Lord, I pray that you would bless our time, that you would bring out the scriptures to us, help us to understand it, Lord, and help us to imitate the life of Daniel and help us to do this for your glory. Lord, I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.